0: Are leaving with the musical leaders and they're going to have some time together while we in this morning are going to turn and return to our series, which you call dissecting Daniel. So now we are landing in the fifth chapter of the book of Daniel. So if your Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to the fifth chapter. We'll begin our reading in just a moment, and we'll do it in segments like we've been doing because it's a rather long passage. It's 31 verses in its entirety. But before we do any reading, let us consider some very common expressions used in sometimes our everyday language, such as this, it's a labor of love, or you reap what you sow. Maybe we've expressed or something as a two-edged sword, or a house divided against itself. All these are phrases and expressions that we use commonly in our lives, and we notice that well, they all really have something in common if we really don't reflect on the fact that what they may have in common is they all come from the scripture, from the Bible, as does the one we see today, the handwriting on the wall. Yet yeah, today in Daniel chapter 5, we continue our examination of Daniel and his friends. We've seen so far in the four previous chapters, Daniel and his friends have all proven to be very faithful, loyal, and committed young men. And God has used them for his glory as well as making the pagan Babylonian world understand there's only one God. Now, before we read the fifth chapter, it's important that we consider that the narrative of Daniel advances many years rather quickly. And you don't see that because we go from the fourth chapter into the fifth chapter. We don't see, because we go from one to the other, an advancement of years and see how sometimes things can advance rather quickly. So, This morning, to let us put all that perspective of where we left off last week in Daniel chapter 4, and now into the fifth chapter, I give you the words of Dr. David Jeremiah, because he helps us here. He says this, between the chapter 4 and chapter 5, he said about 70 years have passed since Daniel was taken captive as a teenager. That happened back in chapter 1, obviously. He said more than a quarter of a century has now elapsed since the end of chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been referring to all this time, is now dead after a reign of 44 years, and Daniel himself is in his early 80s. Consequently, there has been a succession of kings in Babylon. And onto the scene comes Belshazzar, a fellow who was addicted to wine, women, and songs. So, I put that there for us to realize that we've advanced pretty quickly so far in some previous weeks on the narrative of Daniel. It's continuation, seemed of a story, and sometimes the chapter divisions fail to actually let us know how many years can advance in the narrative. And so, now with that comment, we know it's been several years for Daniel being in captivity, and now he's got to the point where he has succession of kings. And now, the person we emphasize today who has to learn another valuable lesson like his father Nebuchadnezzar, is Belshazzar. So stand with me this morning as we do, because we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 5. We're going to start off in segments like we've been doing the previous weeks. We don't read all 41 verses at one time. We'll come and explain some things and go back to the text from time to time. But to get us started, we'll look in the first 12 verses of Daniel chapter 5. And here's what the Lord says. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar And his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. But well, the queen, because of the words of the kings and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, Made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explaining riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Father, we thank you, Lord, for beginning this passage to read today in the continuation of the story of Daniel. We pray, Lord, today as we continue our dissection of Daniel and get into this word today, these words and the things we'll find today, we'll see how we can take those words written many, many, many years ago and even apply them into our modern lives. So We pray, Lord, the Spirit will now lead and guide and direct us. But The things I say is not what I want to say, but the things that you want all of us, as we tune into your word, to receive. Let's receive the entirety of it, Lord, and see how this message, this text, can apply to our lives. So, Lord, let us be thankful for what we shall learn and how we shall apply this this message and this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we stop before a lot happens. We stop there because we need to kind of picture the scene as it begins to unfold. I mean, at the height or the climax of Belshazzar, who is now the king of Belshazzar's blasphemous drunkenness and immorality, and, and of all the party, and, and and at the height of the revelry, it just all suddenly came to a stop. It, it suddenly ceased, and then a deafly silence swept over the entire room. So much so that if you have ever been in a situation like that, and it's all of a sudden silent unexpectedly, you'd know you can hear a pin drop. And maybe that's exactly what happened at this moment. I mean, Belshazzar and his guests quickly sobered up for the fingers of a human hand appeared and began to write a message in words on a wall. Now the text does an excellent job of conveying the sobering moment for the king and his guests. Verse 6 says the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. I like also how Eugene Peterson in the message also conveys the fright that the king experienced. He says... When the king saw a disembodied hand riding away on the wall, he went white as a ghost, scared out of his wits. His legs went limp and his knees knocked. I mean, what a moment. In the the instant of the the party, maybe of all parties, all of a sudden now things change abruptly. He's frightened. He's scared. And we can quickly discern this from the text by the words given to us. So maybe we pause here for a moment and begin to ask ourselves, have we ever been this scared? Have we ever been so scared in our life that our knees begin to knock and the color begins to change and our our bodies go limp? I mean, have ever you been in such a situation where you've been so scared in your life? Now, as we think about that and begin to process that particular moment, recognize this that most of us, if not all of us, have certain fears in life. We have the fear of heights, or we have the fear of spiders and snakes. We have the fear of dogs, the fear of crowds. A lot of people have the fear of public speaking. We have the fear of death, we have the fear of water, we have the fear of sharks. I mean, many, many fears exist. I remember as a child, many years ago, that when my mom asked us, well, Ken probably had to do it sometimes too, but I guess it was more me, because I don't know if Ken had that particular fear. Ken, my brother, has no fear. But as we began to have our lives, we lived in Hazleton, and we, we, mom and dad built a basement and new rooms on top of the house. And the basement was normally dark. And there was a light, but it was normally dark. And the thing about it is a deep freeze was in the basement. So, mom would say, Kirk, I need you to get something out of the deep freeze. We have a thaw for supper. Well, that meant I had to go down the steps into the basement. And, it was, like I say, it was a light, but it was typically dark. So, when she asked me, I would go down the steps cautiously, watching each step as I got down there. And I would even sometimes hit the light. But I was so scared of the dark, I would go over to the freezer, open it up, grab whatever she needed, and run back up the steps as quickly as I could because I was afraid of the dark. And what might be down there in that dark is what I was afraid of. Now, kids looked at me thinking, dude, you're really weird. You're my brother. Because he knows that he has no fear, and I do. But we often have a lot of different fears in our life. And, and when we grow up, it begins to seem rather silly that we may have that particular fear. But the thing is, for us at a particular moment in our lives, it was real. So the question we ask ourselves now as we see things happening here in the text is, and recognizing you may have a fear, what do you do about your fear? In the text, we're about to find out the king's sobering moment and his reaction. We're going to get to more reading in just a little while. But before we do, we ask ourselves, what do you do about the fear in your life? Because it's normally prevalent. Something gives us some sort of fear. And when we think about it, we need to recognize that, and maybe even heard it said before, that there's 365 fear-nots written in the Word, or be-not-afraid instances. And if that's so, that, would make sure then that we have one fear-not for each and every day. And if God deemed it necessary for 365 fear-not verses, then obviously we should not have any fear. Which then leads to the first application point for us this morning. It's from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for the mighty, powerful, sovereign God is with you. Wherever you go, even when you go down to the basement in the dark, he is still with you. Fear not, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by righteous right hand. That particular verse, of all the fear nots written in Scripture, That particular fear not is perhaps my favorite, because it simply tells us and reminds us that God is always with us, and because that is true, we need not fear. But it seems that even with knowing the 365 fear nots are there, and maybe even having a favorite, it still seems that we have a life in which fear can be paralyzing to us. So think about that last week, I began to do some research pertaining to fear. And I found, of course, there are consequences from having a fear to begin to rule in your life. The consequences are things like this. We begin to take less risk. We may be indecisive or procrastinating on certain projects. And thirdly, then, if we let fear begin to control our life, it can ultimately dominate your entire life. Again, fear is real for many, many people. And when fear begins to rule, we must find our strength to overcome that particular fear only from God. God is the answer to rid ourselves of fear. To be finished with fear, just put Jesus first. Fear will not defeat you when you have Jesus by your side. Rick Warren says, when Christians form a healthy relationship, a healthy relationship with God, and understand his eternal grace and mercy, they'll realize there is no real need for fear. Simply said, let Jesus rule your life and cast away your fear. Let's go back to the text because because Belshazzar has fear of what's going on. He's trembling. So go back to verses 7-12 through and note this then. That the new king, Belshazzar, calls in essentially the same group as his father, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was troubled. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was troubled by a dream. We don't find anything pertaining to Belshazzar having a dream, it's quite the opposite. He's fully awake. He's partying it up. He's having a great time so to speak. But once again, he proves to call in the same group who is completely worthless. So the queen then comes into the scene and she tells the king Belshazzar to call upon Daniel. And what does Daniel do? Let's we'll pick up the reading in verse 13. Daniel then was brought in before the king. The king had answered and said to Daniel, "You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. I'm thinking right now." Duh! I mean, how many times does this have to be proven? They have no ability to be able to know what the king has dreamt or what the writing may be. He does the same thing his father does, it proves to be worthless. But he continues, verse 16. But I have heard that you can give interpretation to solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me his interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple. have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom well then daniel answered and said before the king let your gifts be for yourself and give rewards to another nevertheless i will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation o king the most high god gave nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty and because of the greatness that he gave him all people Nations and languages trembled in fear before him. Whom, Nebuchadnezzar, he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was made with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sits over it whom he will. And us stop there because, of course, Daniel is referring to the text from last week in Daniel chapter 4 when King Nebuchadnezzar was transformed, remember, into the hideous beast all because of his ego and his pride. Remember, chapter 4 told us that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The dream was of a large, enormous tree, a watcher, and how his beast would be changed into that of a beast's mind, or his mind would be changed into that of a beast. And so Daniel then warned him he needed to become more humble, certainly less prideful. So now here we see, we continue the narrative, that the apple seems to not far, fall far from the tree. Because Belshazzar, described as his son, has a similar problem. He's very, very prideful. He has a huge ego. But in addition to his ego, it seems he's rude and obnoxious. So the combination of having this large ego, rude and obnoxious, is even worse than the, his father Nebuchadnezzar. So then Daniel, having some acknowledging perhaps of Belshazzar's distasteful character, continues, and he says in verse 22, And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, referring again to his father. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now perhaps as we go over that particular portion of the text, maybe you can detect in Daniel that he's not holding back. In the previous chapter, he knew what was happening to King Nebuchadnezzar. He could interpret the dreams of the gift given him from God, but he was reluctant to be able to let Nebuchadnezzar know the plight that was before him. But we don't sense that here. What we sense here is that Daniel, perhaps willingly, very willingly, maybe even eagerly, enthusiastically, and maybe even happily, explains the writing and its meaning. In fact, the text even tells us that Daniel tells the king, I'm going to tell you, king, the meaning of the writing, but you can keep your gifts. It's like Daniel's ready to let him know what his future beholds. And then he tells them certainly what shall happen. And then the king even still goes ahead as promised and reward him. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That's the 31 verses of chapter 5. That's the whole story and account of the writing of the wall. But what does it all mean? How can we look at this particular text and begin to learn a lesson and apply? Well, there's three particular truths and lessons we've received this morning. First is this, as in every aspect of the book of Daniel. God's sovereignty is emphasized. We keep coming back repeatedly to the theme in the book of Daniel. And it seems that every chapter has a way of making the point. And Daniel 5 was really no exception. The theme, of course, is this, that God is in control. He is all-knowing. He rules over peoples, nations, and rulers. And God will deliver the faithful who follow him. Each week, we seem to have this theme come back into the equation. In the 31 verses of Daniel chapter 5, we notice how Belshazzar, the new king of Babylon, foolishly challenged God's power. And he found he was no match for the living God. Now think about that for a moment, because who is? When you think about God's power, might there might be certain men or women who may come to your mind that think they're all that, and they can challenge God's power, but they truly cannot. Because no man or woman alive has ever, been able to match the power and sovereignty and might of God. Now, I believe I shared with you before one of the stories that may be best illustrated besides Daniel chapter 5. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is 1 Kings 18 when Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. If you're not familiar with the story, allow me to paraphrase what's happening in that particular chapter of Elijah. Because Elijah is instructed by God to go before King Ahab. Ahab, as the king, is married to the wicked Jezebel, and they together and even demand the other people around him to worship and exalt the fertility god Baal. Further, they are also guilty of seeking out innocent prophets of God and killing them. So then Elijah calls out to Ahab and requests that 450 prophets of Baal come to Mount Carmel. And when they all gather up, he asked them a very important question. Elijah asked the 450 prophets, he said, how long will you waver between the two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. Then as they said nothing, that's when it begins to get interesting and happens to be my favorite part of the story. Because Elijah now is about to demonstrate to them there's only one God who is mighty and powerful and sovereign. So Elijah then requests two bulls. One bull for the team of 450 prophets of Baal, and one then for him. Now he tells the 450 prophets, he says, okay, I'm going to let you go first in a manner of sacrifice. And, And as you slaughter the bull and lay out the sacrifice, call on the name of your God. But do not light the fire. Let your God light the fire. So the people slaughter the bull. They make the sacrifice. They lay it out. And they call out Baal. They say, oh, Baal, hear us. To do so from morning till noon. For like six solid hours, all they're doing is hollering for their pagan God to be able to put fire from heaven and to call out and destroy the sacrifice in the wood. But nothing happens. For six hours, nothing Elijah seeing this encourages them to stay the course he says cry aloud for he is a God either he is meditating he is busy maybe he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened so he continues encouraging them to call out they even cut themselves and blood gushes from their body because they it's a practice they have for their God to hear them and to come down and destroy the sacrifice and nothing happens for hours of this, nothing happens at all. So Elijah then calls him in close, because now it's his turn. He prepared the altar, he put wood on it, he got the bowl and the pieces for the sacrifice. But then he instructed the people: fill four water pots with water and pour it on the sacrifice and on the wood. So they filled out the water pots of water, and poured on the wood and the sacrifice. Then he said, do it a second time. You know what kind of look he probably got when he first of all did it the first time and now he says the second time. And they went and got more water and it poured it the second time. But he said, wait a minute, do it a third time. They went got more water and poured it on the wood and the sacrifice, now there's water running everywhere, flooded the sacrifice in the wood. It's completely soaked. Then in verse 36, to pick up the rest of the story, Elijah the prophet came near. And said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Well, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones to dust. And it looked at all the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That is an incredible story. That there's only one God. And he is in control of all things. He alone, our God, the same God as Daniel, the only God. He is mighty, powerful, sovereign. 1 Kings 18 makes that point, an illustration be known. As much as it is, or maybe even more, than what's happening in Daniel chapter 5. They both tell us that God is sovereign. He is mighty. So the first takeaway we have from Daniel chapter 5 is that God's sovereignty is emphasized once more. Then a second truth that's given to us in Daniel 5, or a second lesson, is that people sin is often so rampant, listen, so rampant that they bring God's judgment upon themselves. Their sin is so obvious, it's so continuing, it's so rampant that they bring judgment upon themselves. Now the text today for me clearly illustrates this with Belshazzar. Belshazzar, as you read through the text and the story, you find he was belligerent and belittling to God. In verse 22, Daniel rightfully tells the king, he has not humbled his heart. But he adds in verse 23, you have lifted up yourself, Belshazzar, against the Lord of heaven. At the end of verse 23, he says the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. That's Belshazzar. He's ugly, he's rude, he's obnoxious. He has not humbled his heart in any way. He's drinking from the cups that are sacred. And basically, if you read the story and begin to understand it, it's like God has had enough. Blasphemy now is too much for me to bear. Therefore, he orchestrates the hand to come upon the wall. And notice what is written. Verse 25, many, many tekel parson. It's only three words. The first repeated for emphasis, perhaps. Verse twenty-six tells us many that God has numbered the days of the kingdom of Belshazzar, and basically it's finished; it has come to an end. Simply, Belshazzar's actions have been measured up, and they're unacceptable. Verse twenty-seven, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Belshazzar has not only been not measuring up, but he's also unacceptable in the sight of God. God's sight of God. But God weighed his actions accordingly to his standards, not the world's standards. According to the world, everything was okay for Belshazzar. But wasn't according to God's standards. A side note there is that God does not lower his standards for anyone. Let alone a belligerent king. Verse 28 says, Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So there's the meaning of the writing. But observe this then. The king had placed himself in this position. Nobody forced him to be belligerent or rude or obnoxious. He has his own ego and pride. No one forced him to belittle the powerful God. He brought judgment upon himself. But here's the thing we need to know and make note of for special application. Is a Belshazzar, Is he belittled the king? I mean, is he belittled God? Is he belligerent, rude, obnoxious, full of pride? He is not the only one to do this. He's not the lone ranger, so to speak. So unfortunately, human beings, men, women, children today, may go so far in their sin that they bring God's judgment upon themselves. We all are guilty of this. Sometimes we are so continuous and so belligerent into our sin that we bring God's judgment upon ourselves. Now, this story tells us this. But I was thinking through another story that also demonstrates this fact. And it was all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 6. It's an amazing thing to find that God created man in his own image according to Genesis 127. But then by chapter 6, the Lord was so, chapter 6, verse 6, tells us the Lord was so sorry he had made man on the earth that he was grieved in his heart. He created man in the beginning in His own image. By six chapters later, of course, there's a lot of time, but later on, He is grieved in His heart that He actually made man. I mean, that is so unfathomable. If it were not recorded, I wouldn't even believe it. It's just simply amazing that God would be grieved in His heart for making man. I mean, God is disgusted with His creation. It grieves the fact that He made man. Mankind. As I was thinking last week about that, it made me begin to wonder what does God think about mankind today? I mean, does it grieve God dearly when He sees He created the rainbow. Talk about the flood account. He made the rainbow to be a beautiful illustration. He would never flood the earth again. And now it's used as a symbol and sign for LGBTQ? And to go about the entire month is parading it around proudly. Did you know that yesterday, even Owensboro or Evansville, like I care less where it was at, on the River City, they said, was this great, enormous parade, that everybody wearing the rainbow colors and being very proud of themselves. I see all that unfold and I ask myself, is God angry? In grief? Is he hurt by his creation and abuse of things that should be more sacred? I'll just let you be the one to answer. But here's the thing I noticed. I mean, man, you generically, gets often, often we get ourselves in predicaments. And we seem to try to make it better. And it doesn't get any better. I mean, all that really happens, you have a sin, and the sin leads to another sin after another sin. It's like the situation with David at the Bathsheba began to unfold. Everyone was sin after sin after sin. But, but, but without David having a repentant heart, but we find today people have an unrepentant heart and sin after sin after sin after sin. And, and when that happens, it's like eventually God just lets you be. And that's pretty scary. Paul referred to it in Romans chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. He said, but because of your heart and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works or his deeds. Now, in case we need help with the meaning of impenitent heart, it's meaning a heart that is unashamed, unrepentant, unremorseful, unregenerate. It's basically a heart that is hardened to their sin after sin after sin. And their heart that is shuns and rebels against the authority and mighty sovereign God of the universe. And it's this person then that wallows in their sin continually over and over again with an unrepentant heart, God would just let them be. And eventually face the forthcoming judgment. Is that a description of your life? I pray that is not a description at all of anyone's life in here, or even anyone that you know. But if it happens to be, then recognize this, that we have a great merciful God who offers second chances. 2 Peter 3.9 said, The Lord is patient, long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yeah, we have a merciful God. But it seems that when our heart is bent on sin, we can often not be talked out of it, as it was for Cain, as he slew his brother Abel. He killed Abel. When God told him in, in chapters four, verse seven, God told him, "Cain, sin lies at the door; it is desires for you, but you should rule over it." But Cain, determined as he was, stayed the course, killed his brother. Sin ruled. And judgment follows. Again, the second lesson from this particular chapter of Daniel is people's sin is often so rampant that they bring God's judgment upon themselves. It certainly happened to Belshazzar. And the third and final takeaway then is this. God's faithfulness and the trustworthiness of his word is certain. Daniel chapter 5 is really an interesting chapter. I mean, it offers truth pertaining to the sovereignty and control, as well as provide an illustration of sin bringing judgment upon himself. But it also offers a certainty of his word. And to completely understand that we now have to recognize some things that unfolded that was talked about way back in the early part of Daniel, even in chapter 2. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had his initial dream. It was an image in a dream of gold and silver and of other particular metals that Daniel interpreted for the king. Daniel had told him that the image, the structure was one kingdom after another that was inferior to the other, but would actually overcome it. The head of gold, remember, is the Babylonian kingdom, most powerful of the time. But if you remember the second kingdom, silver, of the chest and the arms, were the Medes and the Persians. Recall verse 30 and 31. That very night when all this happened, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Verse 31 says, Darius the Mede received the kingdom about 62 years old. So God's word has been proven to be true and certain. The Medes have now taken over the Babylonian kingdom and empire. And that's since the chapter is pivotal as recording the fulfillment of prophecies predicted. The downfall of Babylon it has come; it has happened. Babylon has fallen. The Medes and Persians taken over. So God's word is certain. So there's three truths that emerged from this text in Daniel chapter five. Yeah, God is certain; He's sovereign and control. Continued rebellion and blasphemy brings judgment. And again, God's word is true and certain. You can say all those truths that emerged from Daniel chapter 5 is so good you can just take it to the bank because it's certain, it's true. The truth has been known. So the prayer today we should have for ourselves is this. Are we somehow allowing God to be not in control or somehow not recognizing his sovereignty? Are we being rebellious continually? Engaging in sin after sin? Inviting judgment upon ourselves? Are we standing upon His Word? All those things are certain and true. Allow the Spirit to lead you. Repent of their sin. And do not bring judgment upon you. Recognize that God is in control. Be faithful to Him. Father, we thank you for the story of Daniel today and what we learned in the continuation of dissecting this particular book. We pray, Lord, that we leave all of us today as we begin to digest what we've heard here today, the word, and we pray, Lord, that you will be with us and help us make the right decision in life, Lord, that we would not be rebellious, that we would recognize the sin, not recognize the sin of others, let us look at self. And recognize our sin, Lord. And leave here today with repentance. Meaning that we turn away from that sin and leave it behind. Begin to prioritize things and put you first. And recognize, Lord, that you are in control. That's the repetitive thing we've been talking about. But let us truly let you have control. Not just merely say the words. Not just do something to try to impress somebody. But to really give you control of our life and to live a life being a willingness or servant for you. So, Lord, today we ask that in a time of reflection and invitation, to speak directly to our heart. We pray, Lord, to lead and guide and direct us. Let your spirit lead us to respond appropriately here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.